when they created a federal gas tax and states created gas taxes, they created this monster that kind of exists to this day that keeps wanting to build roads. We're fighting a symptom rather than getting at a funding structure that produces that monster and trying to stop a freeway widening as opposed to changing the conversation. Demosisification um, might have to be almost a branding exercise. (laughs) American car culture destroyed the streetcars in LA, just like they destroyed the streetcars in the Twin Cities. I always feel like you're one good mayor away from like bicycle and pedestrian nirvana. That's why I love like Anne Hidalgo and the mayor of Barcelona. They're just like, I don't give a crap. We're doing this. When you build it and people are using it, that gets seen and politicians start to realize like, oh, these are voters, you know. All right, welcome to Bike Talk on the KPFK live stream. Currently operating out of Zoom because of COVID, but we may be back soon, right? Because they're lifting the restrictions. Have you heard anything, Nick, from the KPFK studio? Not I. No? Okay. So we may may be able to get back in there in the next couple of months, I guess. Um, Today, we have a really great guest, a favorite cartoonist of mine named Andy Singer. Um, he's going to be coming on at 6.15. But uh, first, we're going to um, bring on Sophia Merowitz, who's going to talk to us about things in New York, specifically the Lower East Side and Avenue C, a protected bike lane that is stirring up controversy. Welcome to the show, Sophie. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, great to to meet you guys. My, my dad texted me right before this, like, hey, you know, L.A. is... Uh, the center of car culture. And I was like, yeah, I think the, uh, the guys on the show know that too. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah. Um, I live on the low East side, our low East side, East village, alphabet city in December of last year, the department of transportation ended up presenting a bike lane plan for Avenue C. And we were pretty happy with that because we actually got an open street on Avenue B as part of, um, the pandemic era, open streets program, which is like a whole other animal, which is my life right now. We've got all of this kind of energy behind a bike lane on Avenue B, just a a block west. And Avenue C seems like it's going to be in the bag, right? I mean, we have this this big project that's shutting down a huge commuter conduit. And, um, you know, there's just clear community support for it, like very little friction at community board. And then I was on a blog, a local blog, posting about a neighborhood uh, event. And in the comments section, there was just a business owner from Avenue C saying, oh, they're going to add another protected bike lane. We got to rally together and have like all the businesses come to the park and, uh, and present a letter against the protected bike lane to the community board. So they're presenting at community board next week. The DOT is coming back with what they call their their community feedback from restaurants and residents on Avenue C. It's about parking. It is always about parking. But what we have in terms of conditions on Avenue C right now is a bunch of dilapidated paint, previously sort of painted lane bike lanes that are, of course, parked in the whole way. We do have to route around a few bus stops which means that the design includes sharrows and kind of really spaced out bollards that are not super ideal. 
um, which is what part of why we advocated for Avenue B in the first place, because there wasn't a, a bus lane uh, to contend with. But the protected bike lane that um, the Department of Transportation presented last year was still a huge step up from what was on Avenue C. You know, I'm hopeful that because we're dealing with, you know, the climate crisis and completely changing the coastline that we're going to we're going to win. We're going to just keep moving forward with Avenue C. But being in a fiscal crisis, you know, I worry that the Department of Transportation will take any excuse it can to leave protected bike lanes out of its budget. Um, I think we have support. I think we'll be okay, But, you know, always just good to kind of be on the defense for that kind of stuff. Okay. Sounds a lot like uh, the kind of block by block battles that we have here in Los Angeles. And we have a neighborhood council system that's also sounds like what you guys have where it's like an advisory board, but it does right. get taken seriously. Right. So, yeah. So thanks for the report. And um, <laughs> <Sure thing. laughs> yeah, we're wishing you luck. I mean, we're kind of going through this thing right now with uh, bus rapid transit and there's bike lanes mixed in and, and, uh, LA is is sort of struggling right now with with I'm sure all the same kind of things that you guys struggle from what I read um, in Streets Blog mostly. But uh, yeah, shout out to Gersh and Juliana and all the awesome writers there. <laughs> right on. All right, let's bring on uh, Joe Linton and Felicia to talk about the Eagle Rock situation. So hey, Felicia. Hopefully, everyone's recovering from that four and a half hour long marathon meeting last night. <laughs> Felicia, inter- introduce yourself though and what the group that you helped start. Maybe. Okay, so I first got involved with this um, when I first heard of BRT coming to Egrock, and then I heard there was opposition to that from just a few people. So I started Equitable Egrock. So we started advocating to make sure that BRT stays in Egrock and doesn't get bypassed um, and go onto the freeway. And then we've developed that into this larger community group of um, Egrock Forward. And we now have this beautiful boulevard proposal that we've presented to Metro and to the community. And what's in the beautiful boulevard? And so that one's um, something that it has something for everyone, for the community, for the businesses, um, for the environment. So that's like native landscaping bus lane, parking protected bike lanes, wider sidewalks, um, raised bike lanes so that families feel safe biking there. I like one of the critics described it last night as dining, parking, walking bikes and a big fat bus. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't like that, but <laughs> some, at least some advocates on Twitter it's a selling that up as like, Hey, let's do it. (laughs) Yeah. So we're facing some opposition. Um, last night was a marathon meeting. Um, I think it was a problem that Metro didn't have a time limit on commons. So one guy, he spoke for eight minutes. Um, so there was just a ton of like misinformation and brands running rampant last night. And there so were, you, would think, you characterize, would you say that there's more or less, like, how was, how was the split on, on support and against from last night? I, I actually wrote that down. I don't know, Felicia, do you want to answer that or do you want me to? <laughs> I don't remember this, Holly, actually. There were, there were, I got, there were 51 comments, um, there were 26 in favor, so it's just a tad more. And there were um, like 
41 against. So, and there were a handful of kind of neutral people who had questions about Burbank and Glendale, about the uncontroversial parts of the project. So definitely the, the supporters, the folks urging Metro to go further um, than what it's doing um, were, were just barely a majority. We're, we're just over half. Um, and the, the opponents were, you know, just over 40%. And I heard that there were like a lot of people who had raised their hand at the beginning of the meeting, but the meeting lasted, you know, way past the time that they thought. So they just couldn't stay on for that four hour thing. Um, yeah. So it, so it wasn't I really. Think, I think I got to hear um, a total of probably over 500 of people saying, I, uh, of project critics, but then also advocates kind of aping, copying the project critics saying, I've lived in Eagle Rock for 47 years and I've lived in Eagle Rock for three decades and I've lived in Eagle Rock for, you know, 26 years or whatever. <laughs> it's like, it gets the, the sort of NIMBY script of, I'm the legitimate person. I mean, one of the business owners said, I'm a person who matters, you know, as if bus riders, people on foot don't matter. Um, it, well, that's, that's the difficult part of this whole conversation, right? It's like every neighborhood seems to get veto power over these regional mass transit systems that Metro is trying to implement. And it, it, it's like, how do you get past that? How do you like, does Metro have enough political ability to, to get past the well, local, I, you know, how much right do the locals I, have to what, what's going through their neighborhood? Let me, right. let me tee up Felicia for bragging. I mean, I think what Eagle Rock Forward and the beautiful Boulevard plan, I mean, they, they've got businesses, they've got schools, PTAs, you know, um, lots of residents, lots, they, they came up with a great plan and they, they got broad support in the neighborhood. And and they're winning, <laughs> so awesome. that's how you do it, Don. But Felicia, what what take take some kudos on that and tell us how you did it? Yeah, everyone's um, well. Natalie Friedberg, uh, we have to give a shout out to her. She's been really great at speaking with businesses and getting them to understand how that would be beneficial for bringing in more customers, making it a more lively place, and also how it would help their employees instead of them having to search for parking or for them being like late to work because of the bus. That it would it would help them too. Um, so yeah, we have a ton of broad support, but even with that broad support, it's still, it was so problematic to hear the people saying like, I'm the real stakeholder when we know that there's the bus riders are at the bus stop right now. And they're, they're like mostly Spanish or Tagalog speakers and they're definitely not being heard. So that's the hard part. So I think Don, yeah, the way, the way you put, I'm sorry, go ahead, Felicia. Oh yeah, it's just like their needs are being ignored when the people, some people, I don't want to characterize all people living on Hill Drive, but some think only their opinion matters. Let me, let me ask you, uh, like, I, I've actually been following this argument on the Eagle Rock Neighborhood Group, and there's a lady who, you know, it's like, you've got these streets that always come up as, as side street cut-through streets that people are worried about when these get implemented. The same thing happened with Venice Boulevard. Um, she is so 
the way that I see it, it's like there's a political opportunity there. You have this side street that already is a cut through side street. It doesn't really have to do with Colorado. It looks like it's more of a, a 134 to the two freeway cut bypass, right? And it's already a cut through and people are already annoyed at cars cutting through. Is there some kind of opportunity to like, could Metro give them something and get their support? Like, Hey, we'll protect your side street with more stop signs and, and uh, you know, compact traffic circles or whatever they, whatever they do in cities like West Hollywood or uh, you know, Culver city where they really work hard to protect their residential streets. Is there an opportunity there where, Metro can work with LADOT and protect Hill Street and Yosemite and get more political support from, from those groups, from those homeowner groups. That makes sense, like in theory. But we also know like there are some people who, you know, they've lived there for they just for won't be deterred. They're just hesitant to change, which is understandable. Yeah. Um so it sounds I'm- nice but I don't know if that's really their point that they've really okay. want. But well, I think, we're going to, Don, Don, this is yeah. a, this is a bus project. Why are we centering homeowners who already live on quiet streets who aren't going to ride the bus? I mean, I think your, your question, because, because it, the thing it, is, is, your question the thing is a that I've bit, found, you're, you're centering, you know, I'm, a privileged okay, now class I know what you, over, I know, over I know, folks the project is being designed for. I know what you're saying, Joe, but it's like, homeowners are unfortunately like seen by the political class as the stakeholders that matter and let's change that oh i mean let's organize you might as well change the united states of america equitable rock and Igor forward did to to bring those voices forward yeah we should point out that like um like one of the most prominent homeowners and um, on Hill Drive is like Michael Nagara, who his son this week was charged with um, setting with, fire. Yeah, setting fire, and because he said he didn't like to see the homeless encampments. Yeah. So um, I'm like, just I'm just saying to- that because I'm just saying that because the political reality is probably not going to change in our lifetime in the United States of well, America. But, but Don, like, you're talking but, to but people but who are I'm, changing All I'm saying it. is so like don't, don't all I'm saying say is it's a reality. We, I know, I know, I know. I don't want to be a pessimist, but I'm just saying like there are ways to get those people, at least some of them on board. And I've, I've done this with the Hyperion Bridge project. We went and we went house to house and we got the signatures of the homeowners. We still didn't, you know, we got a lot farther. Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just, offer, I'm just suggesting like I see a lot of chatter coming from those people and it's like, is there a way to get some of them on board? That's all I'm saying. Right now, we're going to bring on Andy Singer, who I know, Joe, you're a fan of, and you're an illustrator. I don't know, Felicia, you guys are both welcome to come on, uh, stay on with us, including yeah. Sophie. Uh, I'm going to listen. I'm, I'm okay. a, I've got Andy's cartoons book, and I've been following him since Car Free Times in the or the Asphalt, the Alliance for a Paving Moratorium, all that stuff in the 80s and 90s i think yeah <laughs> okay but i'm a big fan awesome i'm looking forward to it. i'm gonna sign off and listen okay okay and felicia um we're gonna talk to you again in the future about this situation so um let's bring on andy singer hey 
Hey. It's, it's actually really interesting to hear you guys have the exact same discussion <laughs> that we're having in, you know, Minneapolis and St. Paul and like the exact same, you know, it's, it's universal. Um, there's a guy here, Mike San, who once made a bike meeting bingo card where you, if, if somebody at a public meeting said, oh, bicyclists run stop signs, you went check. Um, if someone <laughs> at the meeting said, you know, uh, bicycles don't pay taxes, you put check, you know, and then at some point in the meeting, you could yell bingo if you got like four in a row. Um, <laughs> and it's like, uh, it's interesting here. There are a lot of BRT projects that are in the works and some of them really end up degrading the bicycle and pedestrian environment, um, either because they're putting them on what were rail trails um, or because uh, they put a station near where uh, at a critical intersection or someplace and end up widening the intersection or making it more hazardous to cross or, or something like that. And you try to complain to them, but by the time they've actually put their plans out for a uh, public process or public review, everything's been decided and it's really hard to get them to budge off their um, plan for whatever it is, so. Wow, now you, uh, you wrote the book, Why We Drive. You know, back in 2013 and my friend who was working at microcosm at the time actually sent me the book it cleared up so much about our situation in america it's really a fantastic book and it really gets into the nitty-gritty of like how this all happened one of the things that was kind of a revelation to me was talking about the agencies the agencies that are there and the people in the agencies that are there for their entire careers which could be 30 40 years yeah. And you've got these politicians that we vote in and they're there for four years and they have term limits and this and that. Yeah. Yeah. So those agencies are not trying necessarily to listen to the politicians when they're on like a, a lifelong mission of their own. They've been educated, you know, I don't know, in the 60s and 70s when car culture was. Yeah. Many. Know, I mean, DOTs here, the, the Minnesota Department of Transportation um, is proposing a project for this a very divisive freeway that connects uh, downtown Minneapolis and downtown St. Paul. And uh, they've had tons of public feedback that, hey, you know, all the way up to we'd like to rip the freeway up. Um, and it, it uh, like many freeways in the United States, it um, destroyed, partially destroyed an African-American neighborhood in the 1960s, um, late 50s and 60s. And um, you know, there are a lot of groups who would like to see it downsized or see uh, caps or, you know, um, a freeway, uh, um, a land bridge put over top of it or various other things. And the, the agency is still, they've released their what's called draft purpose and need statement where they state what the goals of the project are. It's sort of part of the scoping phase of any uh, road project. And it's, it's the language of it is exactly the same as it would have been in 1950. It's like, um, we want to move cars. It's like uh, traffic congestion and, um, you know, all the same kind of stuff. It's amazing. Um, yeah. G give us a rundown of the main messages of the book for our audience who may not have read it yet. Um, the, the book was, I, I did like a, just a book of cartoons and sort of of anecdotes and things about cars and uh, car culture called cartoons in like 2001 with um, there, there used to be um, a guy, Jan Lundberg, who, who died recently, but um, he, uh, he was part of the Lundberg family, which uh, does the Lundberg oil report, but he was kind of the black sheep of that family and hated cars. 
and he had this uh, this thing nonprofit that he started that was called the Alliance for Paving Moratorium, and he tried to in the um, I guess it would have been the early '90s to mid '90s he tried to convince the major environmental organizations to sign on to. Uh, a paving moratorium, the idea that we have enough roads and enough pavement in America and we shouldn't be adding any more to it. And none of them would sign on to it, um, Sierra Club or you know, NRDC or some of these big groups. And so, but he put out this newsletter that was uh, called um, Auto Free Times. And um, uh, I used to do stuff for that. And, and through that, out of that variety of ways came Car Busters, a guy named Randy Gant started that. And um, uh, so I put out this book in 2001 of just cartoons and things that had been in um, auto free times and car busters. And then people asked me to speak places. And uh, so I started developing this slide talk um, during the 2000s. And then the why we drive is just kind of a book version of that slide talk. And it's just kind of giving people who don't have any kind of transportation backgrounds, um, explaining some of the issues with automobiles. You know, everybody knows that like uh, carbon comes out of their tailpipes and sort of the obvious things, but I don't think a lot of people realize how much they destroy space, uh, physical space, you know, the myriad of ways in which they're inefficient users of space. Um, I, I think a lot of people online have seen the little meme of, of how many, how much space uh, 200 cars take up versus if they're all on bicycles or if they're all walking or if they're all on a transit vehicles and how much space that represents in your downtown to have to park all those vehicles and move all those vehicles. And, um, and then, you know, what it does to our suburban landscape. Um, and, and so anyway, my, my thing is just summarizing a lot of these different issues with cars um, in one place uh, for people who don't, um, know this stuff and and in a way kind of challenging the idea of green automobiles or green cars because um, yes you solve what comes out of the tailpipe but um, you don't solve all the carbon that's going into creating the road infrastructure or the space destruction or like all the other problems that they create and then I devote a little time to talking about the history of how we got here uh, which is a mix of a pure accident um, versus Europe, uh, where in the United States, um, during the depression, we were looking for ways to pump public money into transportation or into, um, into infrastructure projects. And all of the railroads and transit systems in the United States were privately owned. Um, so, um, it didn't make much sense to put public money into them. Um, whereas in Europe, after World War One, all of the uh, all of the streetcar systems and all of the public transit and inner city rail were had been nationalized because after World War One everything was bombed and um, you know the government had to bail everything out so it was like German national railways Swiss national railways pretty much all the city systems were actually owned by the cities um, and so when they had all this Marshall Plan money after World War II they pumped it into these transit systems that was it was it was a good conduit for public money and so in Europe the transit agencies predated their highway cousins. And so they could really compete with them for funding and stuff like that. Whereas in the United States, we kind of started out pumping all this money into uh, highways that during the FDR administration in the 1930s. And the, uh, the initial federal big agencies were highway agencies. 
And when they created a federal gas tax and states created gas taxes, they created this monster that kind of exists to this day um, that uh, just keeps wanting to build roads. It has this dedicated funding source. Um, and, it, and, and when you have a dedicated funding source as an agency, it means that you control all the jobs associated with that and you have a tremendous amount of political power. And like you were saying at the beginning, you, um, you, you control the politicians almost more than they control you. Um, and uh, so to this day, uh, you know, we have, the, the federal government has reformed this somewhat um, during, in, in 1991, they passed um, the ICE-T, which was the Intermodal Surface Transportation Efficiency Act. And they, that allowed federal money to be used for transit projects for bike ped, um, there was a congressman from Minnesota, from the state I live in, um, named Jim Oberstar, who drafted that legislation because he was the chair of the House Transportation Committee. And he put in uh, what's called the Enhancements Program into that legislation in 1991 that was um, for bikes and pedestrians. And it was like 1% of the whole bill. But that, that gave birth to all the bike infrastructure that got put in in the 90s nationwide. Um, and it was the reason that a lot of cities and states hired bike ped coordinators um, and, and transit stuff. A lot of the, um, a lot of transit, um, both, both commuter rail and light rail was put in during the 90s as a consequence of that bill. So the federal government kind of reformed this a little bit, but states have not. California and M Minnesota and most states still have a, a constitutional amendment in their state constitution that requires that um, certain tolling revenue and gas tax dollars be spent on highways. And we so there's did. always lots of money for highways. And, um, you know, if you're, if you're doing BART in the yeah, we, area we, or something, you have to come up with another way to raise money and you're competing with other needs like housing and um, schools. And, um, and so we, we still have, so the book talks about that. And, um, and just kind of about the politics of transportation, the fact that um, if you live in a denser place in the United States, it's probably going to be progressive or more, more politically progressive. Um, and the lower in density uh, the place you live, the more likely it is to be Republican and what the reasons for that are. And um, so, yeah. Yeah, in California, we, we actually did just pass a gas tax um, which I guess we hadn't raised the gas tax since the nineties or something like that. And, uh, I was always sort of on the fence about it because I can, I think probably from your book, I kind of understood the dynamic of the, the money creating the monster, but we generally, the, the sort of bike advocates and pedestrian advocates were in favor of the gas tax if only just to make it more painful, I guess, for drivers to drive. But uh, that's the way it's sold sometimes. Yeah. People is like, you know, if you increase the cost of driving, um, this is this happens with tolling, too, and with um, with what's called road pricing, um, you know, which they're going to introduce in New York. But the devil is always in the details of these things of where is the tolling revenue going to go? You know, if the tolling revenue can be spent 100% flexibly by a, a body that's accountable to people and, you know, can be used for to subsidize transit or for bike pet or whatever, then that's great. But if, it, if it's only going back to roads, then, um, you know, these things are a problem.
And then, you know, there's a lot of discussion about where this money comes from. It's like tax foundation is a resource that I look at a lot of times to, re- to refer people to, you know, when I hear the argument of like, well, bike riders don't pay for the roads. And then I'm like, well, actually, car drivers only pay for about 50% of the roads. That's right. So, um, you know, yeah, that's right. that was another sort of reasoning that that I thought, okay, this is a good thing, the gas tax. But I guess it's sort of... And in, in cities, it's even less, you know, because uh, pretty much like the city of Los Angeles or the city of St. Paul, all of the street infrastructure in the city pretty much is coming out of property taxes. Um, you know, which all gets of the cities the discussion on the you guys were having earlier about appeasing or not appeasing property owners, um, you know, and why cities seem to listen to them much more than they do to um, to non property owners. Um, yeah, because that's yeah. Your, that's your tax base. Yeah. And they, you know, it's like I hate that, but it's also kind of I don't know when that's ever going to change about America. But, you know, I'm always trying to find a way to pick off some of the opposition and, and try to get them to buy into a plan because there might be some kind of self-serving interest for them. For example, these cut through streets where these property owners are like, my street is going to get more busy with cars. And it's like the funny part about all this is that people are always complaining about cars. You know, and even the people that are opposed to these BRT projects, they're like, this is going to cause traffic. These cars are going to come down my road. And it's like, well, you're complaining about cars and we're trying to introduce another form of transportation for people to choose. And it's just like, it doesn't click in people's heads. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard. I mean, I, I sort of side with your thing. I mean, you, I saw, I, I hear both of you guys, uh, both Joe and yourself in that discussion in that, you know, you I definitely want to try to get people on board as much as possible, even people that I disagree with. But at some point, you know, you need political brute force of, right, of like right. showing enough people showing up at meetings or writing in or whatever. And that's, you know, sometimes that's the only way to get something done. But um, but ideally, you know, you do something and there is a, a lot of it is just human resistance to change. And like if you change things, people are like, oh, you're changing things, you know, Um what are we now, going to do? And, and, and then once the change happens or you do a couple of these things and you do them successfully, then, um, then there's less resistance or less, um, at least with bike stuff. I don't know about BRT. BRT is hard to say. Yeah. Like, so I've been wondering, are we going to have to fight for each street separately across the entire United States and wherever else <laughs> is it happening? I mean, are we not able to automate any of this? <laughs> Um, You know, I mean, this is something that I wanted to get at a little bit in the book, which is that I feel as if a lot of times we're fighting a symptom of things rather than getting at a funding structure that produces that monster. And that if we were to reform the funding structure so that um, a DOT or whoever could equally easily get money for a, a transit project or a bike ped or even building low-income housing closer to jobs so that people didn't have to um, didn't have to uh, use you know could walk to work um, you know those are the kind of things uh, you know increasing flexibility in transportation spending and sort of reforming that whole funding structure to me Otherwise, I feel like we're fighting individual battles of trying to stop a freeway widening or trying to 
um, react to something as opposed to, um, you know, like changing the conversation. Yeah, Andy, I'm going to just pop in there. And I think, um, you know, treating the symptom is a really good point for me lately. I've kind of gone from fighting the power to kind of uh, promoting what could be in my advocacy. So, you know, with the open streets projects that I, I lead a community open street and talk about, you know, fighting for it's eight blocks and it's taken up my entire life. Um, but, you know, we're focusing really hard on programming right now. So we're doing like Zumba classes, exercise, uh, performances. We had a fashion show, you know, and it's like, people feel really, people are just used to being on the sidewalk. So they like are, you know, are so trained to be in that zone, but when they see stuff happening and they see, you know, the benefits of reclaiming that space, that's when kind of some good stuff starts to get cooking as opposed to, kind of that friction you were talking about. Similarly with our busways, I worked on the 14th street busway campaign and um, it was the exact same thing. You know, you had this op opposition group that was saying there's going to be traffic on, on side streets. You need to do an environmental study <laughs> for a bus <laughs> because there's going to be traffic on side streets. And then, you know, once we found out how fast the bus could be without cars in the way, um, the city was able to have this blueprint and they kept using it. So, you know, it's like kind of once maybe one of the policy or funding streams is like give the city or municipality something to brag about. Right. And then let them stamp it everywhere. Like the, the demosification um, yeah, sure. might have to be almost a branding exercise. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, you, you, in two ways, you improve the situation because you do it and like the sky doesn't fall in. In fact, things get better. Um, and then also because the agency had to do it or pull through it now, as you say, it has a template, you know, it, it learns some things from the process of doing it of like, oh, how can we mitigate construction better? Or how can we sell this better at public meetings or do better presentations for things? And um, yeah, both of those things start to happen the more you, the more you do these projects. I'm a big fan of uh, Jeanette City Khan's um, book. Uh, what is it? Street Fight. Street Fight. Yeah. yeah. Just and just just it. the idea of you know <laughs> what can you do on the cheap, and that the more you do things and people see them, the more um, the more popular they become. We were talking to. Um, uh, there are a few design firms that have come to check out the open street. We've been using um, police. We've repainted police barricades and started using them as uh, sort of chicanes. And uh, there's a group that wants to try prototyping a, a barricade made out of recycled bicycles. There um, are all kinds of like cool, cool visioning things happening. Um, but yeah, totally. I mean, it's you sound way ahead of us. I'm trying to get them to use. <laughs> Um, that, you know, uh, DOTs or, or public works departments have a uh, lots full of these Jersey barriers, concrete Jersey mm -hmm. barriers. And I, I really like them because they provide actual physical protection. Yeah. Oh no. And we like, love them. and then New York, art? you know, they decorate them or like, you'll get an arts group or somebody to like, you know, um, do funky stuff to them. And like, um, that's like 10% of the time. Most of the time it's just like bollards that are just like, like a truck and you know, yeah. it's gone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, here we get plastic poles that get mowed down like the first Yeah, yeah, same poles. thing. <laughs> yeah. Which I learned cost $100 a piece to be um, uh, installed by the time you add insulation and everything. Yeah, I mean, well, that's a good question. Like Jersey barriers, I mean, they're cement, right? So what's the like carbon footprint of pouring a bunch of Jersey barriers versus the little plastic things that get destroyed? 
Um, it's a good question. I would say that, you know, on eventually you're going to rebuild the street one way or another, you have to reconstruct the street. And uh, because the entire nation and every city has so much deferred maintenance and no money and like the timeline for actually rebuilding the street is, oh, yeah, we'll get to that in 50 years. Um, like, I like the idea of they have all these Jersey barriers sitting around doing nothing. Um, I'd rather they plunk those or, or make some, you know, there are a lot of temporary bikeways. I mean, her whole book is about, you know, New York doing a whole bunch of things temporarily kind of on the cheap, but, you know, with like, you know, folding chairs and whatever. And, and, uh, and I like, I like that idea because, uh, it also gets at the idea that bike infrastructure has to be expensive. Um, and it, it doesn't, I mean, you, you can just, um, make space on existing roadways. It's a, it's a question of political will, not money. Totally. You remind me of the Red Cup project in D.C. Um, I think that was really awesome. We have the Department of Transformation here, which has done like little flowers and cones. And, you know, like we were looking into it. So we got sawhorse barriers for these um, open streets, which are, you know, pedestrian, supposed to be pedestrian. But they really, you know, the way we have to configure them for emergency vehicles, they, they're still almost like a welcome mat for through traffic. But they do slow traffic down. And, you know, sort of looking into when we thought we're going to repaint these sawhorses, they don't create like a hostile police presence in the middle. And this was last summer, too, in the middle of, um, you know, BLM's reinvigoration. We started repainting them. And I I called um, Steve Vaccaro, who's like a very well-known bike lawyer in the city. And I was like, hey, man, like, what's the cost of these sawhorses? Like if we paint over them, like, am I gonna, he's like, yeah, I think they're at most 70 bucks each, you know, and we've been painting them, repainting them, drilling them together, um, tying them together with paracord so that, you know, people who really don't like it, don't like throw the, the legs in the, in the yard, but they're, they're really cheap and they still manage to slow traffic down and, and create, yeah, this different vibe and create a new space. It's like it's like uh, anarchist uh, street design Legos. Yeah, <laughs> yeah a little bit. <laughs> we, we have a group in Los Angeles called the Department of DIY, which does similar things, posters and painting and rearranging cones. It's pretty amazing how one little cone can cause drivers to. It's got a lot of power over drivers. Yeah, I was talking to somebody about like um, some project. I don't remember where it was, but they put like they painted big, like colorful circles and intersections to Uh confuse drivers. uh, I think it started in Portland. They had like um, it's called intersection repair. Yes. And there were a bunch of people who used to do uh, I, I don't know if they still do it, but they have an event in the summer called the Village Building Convergence in Portland. And they go into maybe 14 different intersections of the time I was there, which was in 2004 or something, 2005. They um, they did 14 different intersections around the city and they go in and put in native plantings and they um, do one of these mandalas in the middle of the intersection. And um, they also had people who were into building with cob, which is like um, basically mud, straw mud, but they put layers and layers of um, waterproofing over it. And so you can make like benches and things public, you know, it's like concrete, but let, more benign. And you can make uh, uh, public benches and stuff with it. And so they would go in and do a bunch of these intersections and they would have bands or, you know, people entertainment at each place. And they would put out a map like a newspaper um, of the 14 sites. 
And for the two weeks that the event was going on, you could bike between the different sites and like sort of hang out. It was sort of like a, a, a citywide street fair type thing. Um, and I know some people came to the Twin Cities and did mandalas here. There's a couple around, uh, but I don't know that we've done any in a while. Hey. I learned recently about spray, spray chalk. We had some at an event, like they were, we were visualizing data on the street and I figured that stuff would wash off and it actually has stuck around. So oh, wow. kind of a I've modern never, I've never heard of it. Yeah, no, news to me. So we're seeing these things um, all over the same things, the good things like Sophie, you're talking about the DIY things along with the, you know, having to fight these agencies. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, uh, Andy, you came from New York City, grew up also in Berkeley, ended up in St. Paul. You've seen the three coasts. I mean, you, you've, you've, you've had a chance. I know that St. Paul is not on the coast, but it's kind of, it's on the coast of the Mississippi. But you, <laughs> so, you know, you have a comparative view of, of uh, places here. So um, what's the same and what's different? Uh, I think a lot of things are the same. I mean, you know, I think American car culture is American car culture. You know, they destroyed the streetcars in LA um, just like they destroyed the streetcars in the Twin Cities. Um, you know, National City Lines was involved in both things um, through their surrogates. Uh, they, um, you know, the highway departments are kind of clones of each other. Um, or, you know, there's not a lot of difference between Caltrans and MnDOT. Um, you know, it, it's, there are a lot of similar problems. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know, like, I think there's more difference city to city um, and I think cities, I always feel like you're one good mayor away from like a bicycle and pedestrian nirvana. And, uh, you know, somebody will come in like Michael Bloomberg in New York and like the transformation that happened in New York City over like a tw 12 year period or whatever um, with with I mean, I saw it. I would go there to visit people. So I was dropping in maybe once every year or two for a while and biking around and it's like, oh, wow, here's this amazing bikeway. Here's another one. Here's another one. Here's another one, you know, and like, um, and, and I've seen it here in the Twin Cities. I mean, when, when I got here in 2001, uh, St. Paul was a little bit ahead of Minneapolis because it had a lot of nice park trails, um, but we didn't have very much on-street bike lanes or much stuff, you know, in, on streets or in, in the city itself um, or the urban areas of the city. And uh, Minneapolis, um, they got federal money that uh, they had a, a pilot project grant uh, for over $28 million, I think, at one point in the mid 2000s uh, that Jim, Jim Overstar helped them get. Um, and they were one of the cities that was chosen for it. And then they had a mayor, R.T. Rybeck, who was very sympathetic to this stuff and, um, and a public works department that was sympathetic to the stuff or, or who did what Rybeck wanted to do. And um, they and so much got accomplished. I mean, it was it's amazing to see, um, you know, it's amazing to see. And then you know, it's, uh, Minneapolis uh, is up there with Portland now in terms of mode share or pre-pandemic. Yeah, doesn't it have like several of the top bike-friendly cities, Minneapolis or I mean, or um, Minneapolis is yeah, I think it's in the top. You know, it's in the top five probably or something like that. But I hate to think that it relies on. A, you know, this one individual in uh, a high position, you know, I'd like to think. It's, it's people voting for that individual or that, you know, but it's, 
it's, uh, you know, it's a conglomeration of things, you know, obviously, you know, you have to have um, an agency, a, a local public works department that's on board, you have to have a mayor's office that is on board and enough like city council support, you know, but, but um, mayors make a big difference because in a lot of cities, they're the ones who appoint the public works directors. Um, and, you know, they, uh, they set the agenda in many cases. Um, some cities are a little different. Minneapolis is more city council driven. I don't know how LA is. Um, but LA is like the city council has a lot of power, I think, yeah. or at least our current mayor sort of makes that excuse, I think. But the previous mayor, Mayor Viragosa, actually, he kicked a lot of ass. He was, he got the trains funded and he definitely went against the grain and put in a lot of bike lanes. So That's the media the ended bold. up hating him. Like you need somebody who doesn't care about car owners complaining or who doesn't care about how politically unpopular um anti-car infrastructure is so i mean that's why i love like Anne hidalgo and you know the mayor of barcelona they're just like i don't give a crap we're like we're doing this um but they have but they have that bottom-up push too they have like advocates that are doing the work and they do have you know i assume local you know whatever the council member position is you know, who are, who are running the torch. We have something called streets pack here. I don't know if you guys have that, but it's like, they organize small donations to, um, you know, transit minded uh, council members and, you know, kind of like lower down the ballot and they endorse um, based on the, uh, the history that that politician has on, you know, pedestrian bike and bus and public transit projects. Um and, you know, I remember talking to somebody who who works with them and they were like, you know, it's about the small donations, like, you know, big donations are great and all like, you know, Bloomberg era or whatever. But like the the small donations that show that political will exists among the people for those types of projects um, really like move the needle more than one might think. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and the end. Yeah, I mean, that's the element of getting people to organizing, you know, getting people who care about this stuff to write in and speak up and then use stuff, you know, hopefully when it's built, um, you know, again, when you build it and people are using it, um, that gets seen and, um, you know, people start, the politicians start to realize like, oh, these are voters, you know. What do you think about the, the media and the narrative that comes through the media a lot of times when it comes to these, when it comes to car culture, um, it's like a lot well, the of the media. advertising in the media is car. Right. Uh, it, it's car companies. They're spending right, right. like $14 billion a year educating us through the media here in the United States, right? Like, yep. Yeah, it's, it's huge. And then also, I mean, you look at especially legacy newspapers and stuff. Um, you know, they all have, there's always, I'm sure there's one in LA, there's always an annual car show. Um, yeah. You know, and that's always on the front page of whatever the, pay, you know, LA Times or, you know, here it's the uh, Minneapolis Star Tribune and the Pioneer Press. And then like, um, they devote some front page ink and like, and there's a car section of the paper. Um, and so, uh, yeah, they're not going to necessarily give anti-car coverage or, um, or favorable stuff to bike ped although it's you know it just depends on it depends on again on the reporters and the the publication it also depends on um the knowledge of the people involved because uh 
newspaper reporting or, or journalism is a dying industry and doesn't pay very well. And like a lot of people who come into it um, might have an area of expertise in something um, in terms of city policy and government or whatever, but it's not necessarily transportation. I mean, um, that was another reason I tried to write this book was I used to go to, um, I, I drew car uh, cartoons for alternative weekly papers. So um, I think it still runs in like uh, random links news in San Pedro, um, but occasionally, uh, but, uh, but all cities all used to have these alt weekly papers and they belong to this consortium called the Association of Alternative Newsweeklies that used to have an annual convention every year in a different member city. And they talk about uh, at these conventions or get speakers to talk about different issues that reporters cover or that, and, and I felt like um, somebody needed to talk to these people about how they cover transportation. Um, and streets, the whole streets blog movement has done a lot to move the needle um, because it's, it's given these folks more information or, um, you know, and, and if you're, if you're organizing like a, a bicycle group or a walking group or whatever, being able to put out information to reporters or people that's kind of ready-made or, um, or, or getting them to view you as a, a reliable source for information um, is also helpful for moving the needle. Crash, not accident. That stuff's big. Um, you know, yeah mentioning there's a driver that did something and not a car that did something. Uh, yeah. We just passed a city council law to put uh, DOT at the helm of a uh, crash investigation so that the NYPD, the police department doesn't talk to the media before, you know, formal investigation is done because so often, um, you know, car crashes, the driver gets let off the hook. The, D the NYPD gives a comment like, oh, they lost control of the vehicle, you know, who, yeah. why, uh, you know, it really um, prevents the public from knowing that there was any culpability or that, you know, there was a design issue on the streets. Yeah, I mean, here locally, I don't know about, about in your guys' cities, but here I definitely have seen the media be more sympathetic to pedestrians getting hit in the last 15 years or so um, and I'll see stories, you know, done, even follow-up stories on like, you know, so-and-so's rehab after traumatic brain injury from being hit by a car, you know, some kid. Um, and in it has it gotten like here, Ramsey County is doing more four to three conversions of a big sort of four-lane death roads. Um, a friend, Bill Lindicky calls them uh, four-lane death roads where, you know, one car stops for you, but then the next car comes and hits you. I mean, they're, they're among the most dangerous sort of types of streets. Um, and uh, so there, there is some movement in both the media and in, as a result, maybe, I don't know, but in county policy and like trying to, um, to, deal with the the carnage of of people getting hit by cars hey a couple of things andy one is uh you know as a cartoonist with what's the new uh model for news whatever that is where do you see your your cartoon? i don't know i you know right now i think i'm more concerned about journalism itself and like people reporters um you know the the journalism industry is just bottoming out on some level, at least the old legacy journalism industry. And I don't see anything coming to take its place in terms of online journalism. Um, 
that is able to make money or, or have like a really sustainable business model. And so you see a lot of blog sites and things that are always hitting you up for money. Um, the guardian, uh, you know, here we have Min Post, a local um, a local news site, which has some reporters who were laid off or left work at some of the other um, news sites, and they do good stuff. But I mean, basically, everyone's reduced to being their own little NPR hitting you up for, <laughs> on like Kickstarter or, or Patreon or something, um, you know, to fund their efforts. And I even see journalists who are like, I'd like to go to Afghanistan to report on something. And they're like hitting people up for money on their, you know, Patreon site. Um, cause they're not uh, hired by a, a news institution anymore. And like those, those sort of legacy news organizations have cut, you know, reporting staff and cut like the amount of people that they're sending to cover overseas conflicts to, um, they're doing more stuff with freelancers. Um, it's, it's not, um, and so cartooning was sort of attached to the journalism industry. And as a result, it's, uh, it's kind of become disposable. Um, and there are only a few, maybe under 20, 20 or 25 newspapers in the United States left that hire, have an actual political cartoonist anymore. Um, and uh, there, there's a, a, it's called the um, American Association of Editorial Cartoonists. And it used to be like this big group with, you know, tons of people. And now it's, um, uh, it's kind of a bitch session or gripe session when people come to it and they're like, oh, good job, you know. Maybe the the book route though, because when I read Why We Drive, it I mean I have definitely heard from other sources about how GM and I and the you know Firestone. They, what is it? GM and Firestone. They, they and they have yeah. this organization that that ripped out all the public transit that was here and, and that worked. I mean I've heard it, you know, from a number of sources, but. For some reason, when I'm when I'm going through why we drive, and there's like on each page, there's a short amount of writing, and then like a picture, a graphic, uh, it it suddenly just sort of sunk in, you know. I mean, in a way that it hadn't before. So it's a really good, it's a good uh, medium. I love. What, I mean, what, I think what, the the other thing about cartoons now is like anyone can make one. We have the meme meme culture, and memes are cartoons. You know, it's like you're combining a photographic or some kind of image with a bunch of words, and like a lot of the things that people just make and share on social media are brilliant. You know, they're they're better than any political cartoon that's that's out there on a given issue, and um and so there's we've kind of democratized it to where anyone can do it which is great you know but it means that um there's no more sort of job for professional meme makers or you know um i but it, it think is a good talk to you, right i think i talked to you maybe online at some point about your influences as a cartoonist and um you know i i would would want to hear it from you uh, here on the show. Uh, I'm going to assume that Mad Magazine was in there somewhere. Oh yeah. I loved, I love Mad Magazine. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to think of, uh, God, I, I always forget the guy's name, but there was one dude who used to draw people with like these huge jaws and bulging eyes. That was, I was Don Martin, Don Martin that I was uh, transfixed by as a kid for some reason. And, uh, and then I, I loved Bernie Clyburn who was, B, most people know B. Clyburn from a book in the 70s called Cat, Hell of a Nice Animal Frequently Mistaken for a Meatloaf. Um, and they made posters about it. There was like, 
cat posters. It, it, he, any panel cartoonist since the seventies is influenced by Bernie Cliven. And that includes um, uh, Gary Larson ripped off uh, Bernie Cliven's way of drawing scientists and animals and certain things. Um, uh, Dan Perraro, who does uh, Bizarro, you know, borrowed at least initially and otherwise, I mean, it's impossible not to borrow from Bernie Cliven. Um, mm. And there are a bunch of his books that are still in print um, called Never Eat Anything Larger Than Your Head. Um, that's pretty funny. Or um, Two Guys Fooling Around with the Moon is uh, mostly, is that, uh, oh no, uh, Tiny Footprints or Small Footprints or something like that. One of them is a book of just wordless cartoons. Um, and he, he was like a magazine cartoonist in the 60s and 70s. Um, so that's a big one. I always like Saul Steinberg, who used to do stuff for The New Yorker. Um, he did the famous New Yorker's view of the world that was made into posters. So it would be like LA's view of the world, uh, you know, Salt Lake City's view of the world. And they would show like a couple of streets and whatever city it was. And then the rest of the world is like this kind of ambiguous. Um, that was his best known image, but he made a, a ton of really great cartoons. And, um, and that's been repeated so many times. Yeah. So are um, you coming with another book at some point or... What are your plans for the future? Uh, I, uh, maybe, you know, I, uh, yeah. books, you know, books are kind of dead. I mean, unless you're um, a former administration official doing a tell-all book at a moment of, you know, or, or you know, Prince Harry or something. And well, I was going to say sell, like, Romo, but half okay. a million <laughs> copies of your book. Um, it's, it's not, um, it's not a very lucrative thing. I mean, most of, I bet a ton of authors that you read or see and you think, oh, this person must be making bank. It's like, no, nah, they have a teaching gig somewhere. Um, Are they going on those tours? Like they're giving, you know, $50,000 Ted talk right? talks for, for like a year. Right. Or some but other side, you know, some other sideline. I mean, you really, you really have to sell like crazy amounts of books to, uh, but I might, I might put together, you know, like self-publish or, or put out something again of like updated cartoons. What about like a longer form, like a, a, a comic book? I have a, an idea for a couple of things, um, you know, and I have to, um, again, it's unlike regular book proposals where you can make a book proposal um, depending on who you are and maybe get a publisher for it. Um, it's comic graphic novels. You kind of have to have worked out a lot of stuff before you're, um, before you're, it's, it's hard to get fronted money to do it. Um, but I, I have a couple ideas. I don't know. At some point I'd like to get to them. Uh, you know, well, right on Andy. Um, we're coming to the end of the show. So we want to thank you for coming on, man. Thank you. Thank you like, for having me on and thank uh, all yeah. of you for working to make your respective municipalities more amazing. <laughs> oh my God. It's never ending. It seems like. So anyways, <laughs> um, thanks for coming on the show. And is there, you know, we want to get all your, your social media hits and I'm, I'm assuming you have a website. I haven't, into it but yeah um, just andysinger.com but it's, Andy it's a very neolithic website um done in old <laughs> old html that's all good because you're i mean the memes that, the cartoons that you're putting out that i see on your facebook feed i mean you go into more than just transportation you're you're on 
whole like critique of American culture. It's really fun and amazing. And you find a way to get right into the, the uh, just the way that you present uh, the critique is, is uh, fantastic. So, um, you know, I always look forward to seeing your posts. Thank you. So thanks for coming on the show. We really appreciate you and uh, hope to see a whole lot more work from you. Moving yeah, for forward. sure. Thanks for, thanks for having me out. I got to listen to the, um, I still haven't listened to Charles um, on your show. I got to listen to some past episodes. Yeah. That was last week. That was great too. Yeah. So anyway, thank you. Okay. Take care, Andy. Thank you, Sophie. We're going to, well, we're going to, well, Sophie, Sophie's practically our co-host now. Like, um, so we might as well keep her on for a little bit more and talk and <laughs> close out the show. Not exactly but, going anywhere on my Friday nights these days. So. <laughs> no, but that was a great conversation. Thanks for, for chiming in. Cause, uh, you had some great insights. Oh no, to it's share. so cool. So what a great. treat. I had no idea. So right. Cool. I mean, everybody's um, yeah, I just, I love, I was going to show him like my original oh. magazine <laughs> but um i feel like i read one of yeah, the last the thing- ones before they stopped print and it was like so sad it was like it made me like really upset yeah i, I just read that al jaffe who does the uh, fold-ins on the back of the magazine is 100 years old he's still going i was like wow because um anyways it's it's just yeah they uh thanks for coming on sophie and andy was your idea and uh oh andy singer was my idea yes he was um somehow i creeped into his facebook friend list i just like requested him and he accepted me so that was pretty cool i've never met him before so that was awesome um but yeah it's like just talking to you sophie about this the issue that you're having in the Lower East Side and, you know, it's like Felicia and and Joe coming on. We're talking about the same stuff that we've been talking about for years. It's just like, there's just, it's just an endless culture war, I guess. And um, at some point, I guess, you know, things are changing. New York has been transforming, so that's good. So we want to keep following what you're doing. So hopefully we'll get, you back on here with more reports coming out of new york yeah happy and, uh, to i've talked to you guys about open streets got lots of good people like running up their own little mini dot's in a way in their own neighborhoods just uh trying to create a car free or car light environment as much as we can <laughs> yeah here too so we'll keep up the good fight and um sophie where can we find you on social media um, Madam West Bikes, Madam West Bikes on Twitter is really where I'm, I do most of my rabble rousing. Um, but the uh, Lowy Sida Open Streets Community Coalition, Lowy Sida underscore OSCC on Instagram, Twitter. Um, that's where you can kind of find out what hijinks we're up to to uh, to get people to use the street um, and not drive through it. Okay, awesome. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, guys. And, uh, we'll see you back soon. Thank you, Sophie that's amazing to actually talk to Andy Singer. That's cool. And um, we got to have Felicia on for a longer segment and get more info on this BRT situation in Eagle Rock. Cause this seems winnable. It looks like they're really making a lot of, a lot of progress there. So um, 
yeah, I didn't mean to get into an argument with Joe about about winning over the NIMBYs because it's true. There's a certain point where you just can't win them over. But um, we'll see how this goes. Oh, it, it's kind of amazing yeah, what's that they present. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Joe. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's. I'm not trying to. I know you're. You're always saying that I'm being like an Eeyore and everything. It's like I'm not. I'm trying to win at least some of them over. At least some. Give them something to bring them over. Cause that gives cover to the, you know, if they can at least get some of those NIMBYs on their side, it gives cover to the politicians to make tough choices. Right. Don't you agree? Yeah. But I, but I think you just, you gotta, you gotta acknowledge people who are doing the work who are right in front of you. I mean, Felicia did that. They, they got, they got um, Hilda Solis on board. They got, you know, they got half the people, more than half the people, this community meeting to say they support this project. So it's like Absolutely. she did it. <laughs> so well, we can't, we're, we're we're not gotta, quite, we can't celebrate that. Well, I don't. I'm not one to celebrate until it gets past the goal line. Is what I'm saying. It's like, okay, there's a lot of momentum going on. Can we get some more? Can we get some yeah. more people on board? I don't know, but it it looks good. I mean, 26 yeah. out of the 50 for the more extreme plan right that's great so do you think for a mile worth of ripping out a lane of cars that that, that, the you know that the nimbies don't want so the folks in eagle rock really stuck up for having a walkable transit-oriented downtown anyways sorry i feel like i'm (laughs) ranting on about it but yeah it's it's there's currently an eir and the metro supposed to approve it this summer for the whole 18 miles Mm-hmm. And so then Burbank isn't going to have a dedicated bus lane. Is that what you're saying? Like, or are they, they they're going to do like uh, I, you know, I haven't. The truth is, I haven't studied it super tightly. But they they mm-hmm. are in some places going to have some dedicated bus lane on the right side, so that you know left right turning drivers can block buses and stuff like that. So whereas Eagle Rock's really pushing for center um, center running. BRT okay. through through the downtown area, which is okay. which is just faster and less less prone to get backed up behind a bunch of drivers. You know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, okay. Thanks. Thanks for coming have, on, Joe. We appreciate you. Have a good uh, night. Sorry to jump. Yeah. In. <laughs> no, 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 no. We 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 like it when you come on because you're like you're very much you know educated and up on all this stuff. So it's good to have you on. So we appreciate you, man. Okay, well, have a good weekend. Good night. Okay, bye-bye. take care. Bye, Nick. Bye, Don. We have an interview with... Uh... Oh, you're going to play the Lindsay Sturman? Okay. Well, this interview is with John Stout. He did a report called Transform Transformation, which identifies harmful health and environmental impacts caused by California's car-centric transportation system. John Stout, thank you for coming to Bike Talk. Of course, happy to be here. And you are the U.S. PERG transportation advocate, and you just released an amazing report through CalPERG, yes? Correct, you got it. Okay, great. So I, I read... I don't want to say I read the whole report, um, but what I read was amazing. Um, (laughs) And it sounds like you've sort of laid out the problem in four pieces and laid out the solution in four pieces. Do you want to tell us 
about it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think you, you pretty much hit the nail on the head. Yeah, I think that our country's car-centric transportation system uh, has been wreaking havoc on our health for a long time. And uh, this comes kind of in, like you said, a couple major pieces. I think air pollution and noise pollution are one aspect that's really hurting a lot of folks. Uh, climate change, I think, is another even broader one that, that stretches beyond our country. I think safety, traffic-related fatalities are at an all-time high, both for um, car users and also uh, pedestrians and cyclists. And then just generally poor quality of life, I think, is kind of the last piece of the puzzle there where a lot of folks who may even enjoy driving in a normal circumstance are often stuck in hours-long commutes and uh, really suffer the consequences in terms of increased risk of diabetes and osteoporosis and all sorts of other terrible things. Osteoporosis. I didn't know that was another I have a friend who works in um, knee replacements in the healthcare industry. And she's like, it's all tied. I bet you it's 70% of our healthcare costs. I would not be surprised. Yeah, no, it's really, I mean, it's so difficult to quantify something like, you know, transportation's effect on our health, especially when it comes to air pollution, for example, where, you know, the air has a lot of things in it and a lot of different pollutants are emitted. So it's really hard to pinpoint those on cars and trucks and such like that, but definitely, we have a pretty good idea that what we're doing currently is, is not working. <laughs> I saw in the report that seven to 11% of dementia is, it was shocking. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. There was a lot of shocking facts for us too. I think, yeah, definitely finding that even just living close to major transportation centers, like a freeway, for example, is really bad for you. I think it wakes you up at night and can yeah cause all sorts of long-term problems, which is really unfortunate. What are, tell us about the solutions. Yeah, good question. So we have come up with a couple sort of midterm goals that we think are both visionary, but also realistic. So the first one, which I'm thinking you might be most interested in, is doubling the number of folks uh, who travel by foot, bike, or transit um, over the next decade, so by 2030. And we do that by expanding transit networks and creating complete streets that are safer and more accessible and, and support folks who are on their feet or biking. Uh, the last two are electrifying all transit um, buses and also school buses by 2030. Again, the idea behind that is to clean up our air, uh, especially for our, for our kids. And then um, the last one is to uh, also, uh, excuse me, electrify all of our all of the remaining cars on the road by 2035, which I know California is leading the way as always. I'm a, actually a California native, although I'm currently based in Boston. I'm originally from Berkeley, so I definitely always feel good to know that California is, is out in front. In <laughs> Um, and so in terms of the bike stuff, I saw this one piece of it, and, and this has been something we've sort of been searching for this. What is the scope of a bike network to really get people to bike? You had like one line about it, that one mile of bike lane in one square mile of land equals a 1% increase in biking. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, definitely a report filled with good stats like that. I think in general, I mean, to, to make it more simple, I guess, is if you build the infrastructure, people will bike, I think is sort of the main takeaway. I think there was a recent article, actually even today, maybe in the New York Times about how all these pop-up bike lanes that have been sprouting up across the world, I think most particularly in Paris, France is one of the big ones where a lot of folks have been biking even more because the infrastructure is there for them to do so safely. Yeah, I mean, it's frustrating because it's like, well, nobody bikes, so you can't build a bike lane, but like nobody's going to bike until it's safe. So you have to, it's, it's, you're just in an endless loop. Exactly. Yeah. Same thing with all these, you know, big public transit service cuts, right? I mean, folks are saying, well, you know, we'll bring back the BART train, we'll bring back the bus system once the riders, uh, you know, come back. Well, they're not going to come back until you make the service reliable and, you know, there for them. It's it's sort of, you got to induce the demand in that way. 
Ah, that's great. <laughs> Reverse the induced demand. Exactly. Exactly. I, I actually stumbled on something this morning that I thought was really interesting, which is transit agencies have multiple, they serve multiple metrics and, and goals. And really the goal should be just to maximize it so that there's no traffic. Literally the number, how many people do you want riding Metro or, you know, or biking is so that there's never too many cars on the street. Exactly right. I mean, the more folks we can get onto a bicycle or onto a bus or subway, or even just walking, it's going to take a car off the road. And I think that is really the name of the game. I think a lot of folks, at least in the circles that I run in, have been saying, you know, electric cars are fantastic. They're really this huge boon. It's going to be a great new revolution. And that's all well and good. And I definitely, we support electric vehicles. I mean, that's going to be a major key step to solving a lot of our climate crises and air pollution issues. But really, we need to get folks to, to drive less. And uh, we have this kind of little saying, drive less, live more. So I think getting uh, folks out of their cars and, and into other modes of transport is going to be really the answer, especially in the short term or even the midterm for uh, for our transportation needs. I mean, you guys did this amazing deep dive into all the health impacts. This is something else somebody said the other day that our lifestyle may force many, many people into obesity and all the things that come from that. It, it may, you know, obviously there are going to be people who can drive and go to the gym and have that time, have that whatever body, you know, good genes. But have you ever stumbled onto any, anybody talking about how this might be the only way? Yeah. You know, I've never seen someone pinpointed so closely to how folks move around day to day. That being said, I know there is a ton of data on even just this thing called a- active transit. So the idea, even that if you walk to the bus stop or to the subway stop, or, you know, you walk to the bike share, even that alone every day a little bit is going to help uh, prevent something like obesity from, from occurring. So I think that you're definitely onto something. I think in the average or the day of an average American, I think encouraging any more movement that we can would be, would be fantastic. And I think a great way to do that sort of that's part of someone's day-to-day life. Once things return to normal is getting to work to and from work, I think is something we all have to do. And I think that giving folks the tools to, to get themselves there on their own power would be fantastic. Yeah. And tell us about your background. Yeah, so I came to U.S. Prairie kind of by a roundabout way. I was actually working in educational and bike travel. I work for a company called Backroads. I'm not sure if you all have heard of it. It's actually based in Berkeley, California, but they do uh, sort of week-long biking and hiking touring trips. It's been fun to blend pieces of my travel background, and then I also studied environmental studies uh, back at Pomona College in California, in Southern California. And it's been fun to blend those two together into the transportation advocacy world by, yeah, just kind of seeing where climate change and health and all these things meet together. I think it's a really fascinating space to be in. Yeah. Don't you feel like it's like, we, like, this is the tip of the spear. This is the, the people are getting, you know, the first over the wall and getting a little bloodied, but it's fun to be in the con- a conversation that's like happening in real time. Yeah. Especially too, with all this infrastructure stuff. I mean, I'm sure you've been following it closely as well, but just seeing how the conversation really is shifting. I mean, I remember even when I graduated almost 10 years ago now, there was no real talk about, you know, new bike lanes and electric <laughs> vehicles and electric buses anywhere but the Bay Area in California, at least as far as I understood. <laughs> and now it's, you know, it's a national trillion dollar package that was introduced by the president. So it's, it's pretty exciting. I think Pete Buttigieg gets it. I'm with you. I think he's on it. I think, uh, yeah, I try to uh, definitely 
I root for him. Every time he says something, it's it's almost always something to root for. Yeah. And, and I feel like the, the curse of bikes is that people write it off. They think it's like kind of for kids or or they, they think it's like the Tour de France types, you know, love them a little bit different than the bike to work crowd. But I keep thinking it's, and I saw this on Twitter, it's Occam's razor. The most obvious solution, the simplest solution is the solution. I'm with you. I think also too, with the um, introduction and expansion of e-bikes, I think that's actually a really big boon. I know when I was working at Backroads, this, this bike to a company I was with a few years ago, the clientele was on the older side, you know, 50, 60, 70, my, my parents' age. And basically they all were huge cyclists, or at least they had one, one of the spouses was a huge cyclist. And in order to keep going and to keep getting on these trips, they needed e-bikes. And sure enough, the, that was the ticket for them. They would get on these trips through Italy or wherever they were, California, Napa, and be riding and you just see the biggest smile on their faces as they're going up the hill or down the hill because they're on any bike and it looks fantastic and i think as the technology improves the price will come down and also i know that there's a lot of incentives that are coming up i know california's got a couple going so it's just great to see uh, an incentivizing effort behind um, the adoption of e-bikes i also think it'll be transformational for families with small kids i mean i i had to get my kids into car seats and cars for years and it's like a pain. <laughs> yeah. And, you, and we actually moved to the, one of the few parts of LA where we could walk. Cause it's like driving. It's like, it kind of, you know, it takes a toll. Oh, it does. Yeah. I mean, I used to go to school down in Southern California and it was really hard to get out of the car. I mean, there's, there's just nowhere you can go where you don't have to get into a car. And I think I was fortunate enough to get, I, like I said, I was in San Diego before I just moved to Boston and I was able to be a bike only basically biking and, and trains and everyone was shocked every time they spoke with me. Is how do you only have a bike in this city? So, well, it's, you know, it takes a little bit of planning, but you, you can do it. But I think a lot of cities, it's not the case, right? I think LA is, is a good example where there's just usually not enough infrastructure there to protect folks who, who want to use a bike. Yeah, no, I, I actually don't tell people to ride bikes in LA. I'm like, yeah. ride on a safe bike lane. But like, I, I mean, one of the reasons I'm a bike advocate is because I'm like, we, we need safe infrastructure to even have the option to do it. And then it's so awesome when you do it. I, I spent three days in Copenhagen and I was like, oh my God, like right. we can do this totally differently. hundred percent. Yeah. And it's, I think especially too, as a West coaster moving to the East coast, it's so interesting to see how the cities here are much smaller. They really feel much more European. Boston is kind of like a series of cattle paths that are crazy windy that have just been paved over. And actually it's much faster uh, to be on a bike than it is to be on a car. How's it going in Boston with bikes? Are they... Pr- are they, are they, have they taken the yeah, right? Yeah. So I think, I mean, obviously I'm pretty new to the city, but from what I understand the last five years have been really transformational. A lot of new big bike lanes downtown, a lot of good crosstown bike lanes. So I think it really enables folks to actually commute. I think the, the trick is going to be to connect some of these rail trails. There's these old train tracks that have been converted into bike paths to connect those into the city, I think will be the big next step. Um, wow. I think That'd be cool. Definitely. We have, uh, I think it was nation leading traffic congestion here in Boston before the pandemic. So we'll see how that all shapes back up when things begin to reopen. But um, in the meantime, it would be great to build out the biking infrastructure a bit more even. Sort of the main takeaway that I'm hoping folks can get is, although, you know, this pandemic has been really so devastating and, and terrible, in some way, I really do hope that we as a country can can reassess our transportation habits and change the way we move around. I think getting folks out of their cars is gonna be even more important than getting people into electric cars. And I think one of the main ways to do that is to get folks onto bicycles or onto a bus or onto a subway. And I think that will really, yeah, change our physical, hopefully mental and uh, and, uh, 
health landscape, if you will. Mm-hmm. So what made you guys decide to write this report? Yeah, great question. So our sister organization, Environment America, has uh, looked or analyzed transportation through a more of the climate lens, but we decided here at USPIRG to look at it more from a people or consumer lens. And so that's really why um, with all this new information coming out about all the negative health aspects of our current transportation system, we decided to, to take up this report. I should also give a shout out to Frontier Group who also helped co-author this report. I definitely wouldn't, wouldn't be here without them today. They did a huge chunk of the legwork and uh, I just get lucky enough to, to take some of the credit. <laughs> Amazing. It's so great to talk to you. Thank you for coming on the show. That's our show for tonight. listening to this episode of Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is BikeTalkPFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group. 